everything I'm doing now and talking about, etc., the faintest idea how many people will listen or it'll have an influence on or whatever, but it doesn't matter because it's my consciousness is going to enter into the etheric consciousness of the earth and it's going to have an influence so that subsequent people uh, incarnating are going to have that thought without having to go through all the work I went through. I noticed this in my students. You probably noticed it in yours that ideas that took me a long time to get people to understand 20 years ago. Now the students are picking it up very quickly. So something's changing in the, in the consciousness. You know, there, there's this kind of growth of understanding that's very subtle, but it's taking place. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today, Paul welcomes back Rudy Vespor. Rudy is the director of the Hanuman Center for Heilkunst and Homeopathy and is the principal tutor and supervisor for the history, philosophy, and principles of romantic science and romantic science healthcare. In addition to numerous books for the general public, Rudy has created many programs of study in the fields of philosophy, romantic science for healthcare, and sequential homeopathy, treatment, and therapy. A big thank you to our premier sponsors, Bioptimizers, Paleo Valley, and Organifi, and our podcast sponsor, Wild Pastures. Their support is essential in producing this podcast, and we hope you will show your support by visiting them online and trying all the amazing products that they produce. Please check the show notes for links and details. Today, Paul and Rudy are taking a deep look at the masculine and the feminine. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check today. My guest is Rudy Verspoor. This is my third podcast, I believe, with Rudy because I always love talking to him. He's, as all of you who have listened to him before know, he's a very deep, very wise, very experienced human being. My favorite type. So, Rudy, welcome. Well, it's a pleasure uh, having being back, and thank you for inviting me. Some sometimes I wonder whether I'll ever get invited back. You never know. <laughs> Well, uh, my doors are always open to you. I'll tell you that. So today our topic is the masculine, feminine, a deeper look. And Rudy's going to take us on a, a real nice, deep dive into the masculine and feminine. He's going to help us much more deeply understand many of the things in this regard that are in the Bible. And he's going to break a lot of things down for us so that by the time we finish, we'll have a much deeper, probably a lot more practical and realistic understanding of the masculine and feminine. And these are very important polarities because without the masculine and feminine, there would be no consciousness. So I think that's an important aspect of the masculine and feminine that people often overlook. So with that, fire away, Rudy. I'm all ears. Okay. Well, the the topic masculine and feminine can be seen in a very narrow way, of course, uh, just talking about the relationship between the sexes. But I want to talk about it in a broader sense so that we can understand the whole idea of sexuality, the whole idea of masculine feminine polarity, because it lies at the heart of one of the most profound mysteries of creation, which has to do with our journey, why we're here what we're trying to achieve and you know what does the masculine and feminine part of that have have to do with our journey and i'm going to talk uh, initially a little bit about you mentioned the bible i'm going to talk a little bit about the bible in the sense 
uh, in a scientific sense, of course, not in a religious sense, because it can be used many different ways, but I use it scientifically. For me, scripture or the Bible is the most scientific book I've ever read. And I once met a biologist, actually, from India, who wrote a book well before I came across this about how Genesis was the most revealing biological book he'd ever read. If we could get away from this very narrow materialistic science and get into the deeper energetic, spiritual, super sensible science, we would have the same revelation that this is a book of science. It is the foundational science of creation. When it comes to the masculine feminine, the place I want to start is in Genesis, which is a good point because <laughs> Genesis is simply means the beginnings. If we read Genesis, this is where most people start. They start with the story of Adam and Eve. Now, this always puzzled me because when I read Genesis, at least the first parts of Genesis, I never came across any reference to Eve <laughs> until after they were Adam left the, the Garden of Eden. So then the question is, you know, where did the story of Adam and Eve come up? <laughs> And I think it's because the, the modern mind could not conceive of what actually was going on and had to generate this idea of a man and a woman. Well, prior in the beginning, as it were, there was no man, there was no woman. So what was there was what in biblical Hebrew is called Adam, A-D-M, or the English transliterations for the biblical Hebrew terms. And so then we have to ask, what is Adam? And if you look at it, it tells you very clearly what it is in the name. The name Adam in biblical Hebrew simply means man in principle, man mean in the generic sense we use in English, who has the capacity for assimilating experience and arriving at a completed unfolding. So this is a unit of being and consciousness, of mind and consciousness that was created and at the beginning of Earth evolution. And it is plural. And it even says that certainly they couldn't hide that in the in the in even the English translation. And they, and in this case, of course, what gets translated as God is the term Elohim, which is not a, a single entity, it's a collective. And so they created them in their image. So who's them? Adam. So this unit of mind and consciousness has internally a polarity already, a masculine-feminine polarity. And this unit of mind and consciousness has inside of it something which in biblical Hebrew is called aish, which is a rational capacity. Now, by rational capacity, we mean the capacity for awareness and consciousness. So this is something that the animals don't have, or the plants. They have a different kind of consciousness, a kind of a sleeping or somnambulistic uh, or dream consciousness, depending on which kingdom you're talking about. But Adam had a unique type of consciousness, which was this rational capacity, capacity to think. And then out of that rational capacity emerged what 
was so that's a you could say a masculine capacity this capacity to to think as we would call it and also out of adam emerged a feminine capacity which was the capacity to receive the thought or conception and give birth to it a creative imaginative capacity as coleridge would call it he called it the feminine mind of imagination and so this is where we get this adam and eve from but really what you have is this unit of mind and consciousness called adam which contains within it this rational capacity this capacity to think rationally logically as we would call it and this feminine capacity which the greeks called sophia or we would call wisdom and all of this is contained within one unit called adam so adam's not a guy adam is a unit of mind and consciousness there's no body there there's no somebody walking on the grass or whatever okay so that's adam and eve now the next story is the famous one which is the story of how adam and eve got kicked out of the garden of eden and the favorite character here is what's often referred to as the serpent but this is a rather strange and misplaced translation of the hebrew term nahash and because in other parts of the bible snake or serpent is translated by serif so what is this nahash and again if you break it down in terms of the hebrew symbols so the, this is the secret of biblical hebrew is that it emerged actually out of the egyptian hieroglyphics and each of the letters in the biblical hebrew alphabet are a word and that word itself contains letters which then it's it's like uh, the peroshka dolls or whatever the russians call them a doll inside a doll inside a doll <laughs> it never ends but in any case the point here is that each letter is a symbol for something in the universe it's an archetype so these specific archetypes so if you break down the letter symbols of nahash you get and i'm just going to read it because it to say it i probably uh, miss parts of it but it basically says it's an intensely powerful primordial power that must be harnessed to a higher end or purpose otherwise it becomes simply destructive so what we have here is what you and i have been talking about for the last two sessions at least in my mind we've been talking about it i know it's not not everybody talks about it or got it but we're talking about something we call the creative generative power so remember when christ told his followers you shall be like gods okay so this is the idea of a co-creative power that adam and we're individual expressions of adam that adam will develop this co-creative capacity in a way which has never been seen before but we're just at the beginnings of and this co-creative capacity this generative power is what the serpent is all about 
this is activated. It's like um, a desire function. That's what I call it. A desire function with a goal. So you wonder when you're born and you start doing things, why did you do this? Then you did that. And then you went there and then you had this experience and you know you had these parents and everything else. This is because you are being guided until the day you wake up more consciously. You're being guided by this wisdom, this, this Sophia, this unconscious wisdom. And that unconscious wisdom is guided itself by your particular desire function. You as an individual unit of mind and consciousness, because scripture is very clear, it's all about individuation. That's why we have unique uh, DNA. There's nobody like you in the universe. And so you also have a unique desire function. You have a unique purpose in all of creation, and not just in this lifetime, because if we take into account you know, subsequent lifetimes, reincarnation, in all the times you, you reincarnate, you have a unique purpose, a unique uh, desire function. And you're driven by that whether you like it or not. All your interests, all your motivations, all your insights, all your imaginations are all driven by this unique desire function. So this is what gets implanted, you could say, in Adam. Now, what happens then is once you have a desire, this starts the whole individuation process and you can't stay in the womb anymore. You have to leave. Because in order to individuate, in order to, as you put it, uh, to be conscious, you have to have a separation from creation or from the, the God of creation or the gods of creation. And so this is the story. It's not that Adam and Eve were, well, there was no Eve, that Adam, it's not that Adam was kicked out of the Garden of Eden because he transgressed. This is the moralistic story. But he had to leave in order to go on this journey. And so this journey meant that he had to leave the womb and he had to enter into a world of polarity. Okay, now this world of polarity and adding the separation means that you start to individuate but you also start to create an internal tension between the masculine and feminine capacities. And then Steiner picks up the story because you don't find this in Genesis, of course. Steiner picks up the story and tells us the evolution of uh, the earth, the current earth iteration. And he calls the first, you could say, life field that emerged uh, was he called Lemuria. This is all ancient wisdom, of course. And halfway through Lemuria is when he posits that the fall occurred. This is what in scripture is called the fall, or we call it the fall. And as a result of that, by the time of Atlantis, so going on thousands and thousands of years, by the time of Atlantis, as man, Adam, started to incarnate in physical form, 
roughly about the middle of Atlantis, there was a separation between the sexes. So this separation was a split in Adam into a physical male and a physical female. So both are Adam. Okay, it's just that one has the outer masculine characteristics and the other has the outer feminine characteristics. Now, we focus on the outer and the genitalia and everything else, but that's not the most interesting story. The most interesting story is what's going on internally. Now, prior to the splitting of Adam into these two sexes, all of creation and generation and reproduction, you could say, was taking place internally. The atom, the unit of mind and consciousness, in whatever form it was in, would reproduce, you know, basically within itself, like, you know, plants do in many ways. That reproductive capacity is a generative capacity that allows you to create something new. And it exists at the dynamic pole, which is the lower, the nether part of our being, but it also exists at the upper pole, the supersensible spiritual pole. So now, in order for us to be able to think for ourselves, in order for us to wake up and gain consciousness and eventually self consciousness, because that wasn't discovered really until about the Middle Ages, self-consciousness. You didn't find it in ancient Greece or other places. So in order for us to gain this and develop this, and why? So we can be free if, if we have this capacity. We had to literally separate internally. Okay, So there was a split that occurred between the upper being and the nether being internally. So not only do we have a split vertically, uh, sorry, horizontally, between physical masculine, physical feminine, we have a split internally, vertically, between upper and nether being. Okay. Can you, so, can you help me with nether being? Are you referring to matter or the physical body at that point? No, no, it has nothing to do with the physical. This, there are two types of physicality. There's the material physicality, and there is the physicality that involves a force field. Okay? The human body has a force field that determines the shape of, of, the, of the material physicality. And that, that force field is this body that we're talking about. It's like if I talk about a body of work, or, uh, you know, uh, Shakespeare's uh, works, it's a body of work. There's no physicality there per se. The body is purely a construct, a force field. And so the upper being is, you could say, dominated by the spiritual pole, and the nether being is dominated by what we call the dynamic pole, or you could call the generative uh, energetic pole. So if you have a male or masculine outer form, you have in the nether internal aspect, you have, Steiner would call it the etheric body, you have a feminine dominance. 
Okay. That that goes very hand in hand with Jung's concept of yes. a man has a feminine soul nature anima and a woman has a masculine soul nature animus. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, Jung was on to this. He did it somewhat differently. Uh, the way Steiner would say it is that the physical body is masculine, then the etheric body is feminine, but the astral body, which we could make akin to the soul that Jung talks about, is both masculine and feminine. So it's a unity, it hasn't been split. Okay. And this is important because it will help us better understand what's going on today when we're talking about, you know, the, this whole sex gender dysphoria. On the one side, you have this physical female with a male etheric body and a unified but polaric astral body or soul. So you have the anima animus in there. And you have the male physical body with the female etheric body. And you have the uh, the soul again, or the astral body uh, is there, masculine and feminine, both of those. The, pr the, the problem is that um, we have to go on a journey to put that back together again. Now, it was split for a reason, as I mentioned, so that we could have consciousness, that we could wake up and be self-conscious, but we're on a journey to get back together. So this is the the journey to find the other half of us, okay? So you, as an Adamic man, and again, in the generic sense of man, in the true sense, original sense, are only half there. <laughs> yeah, Sometimes I think that's true. <laughs> We're, we're always searching for the other. This is what drives the relationship between the sexes, you could say. Why? Plato, who was more spiritually inclined, famously said he could never understand how men and women could get together because they were so different. He couldn't understand the reason for why they would want to get together. But what's driving that is that you're always looking for your other half, the better half, as it were. And in your journey to get there, you have all of these experiences, you have all of these insights, but you also need, and this takes us to beyond Steiner to Wilhelm Reich's works, we also need to join the split internally. Not only do we have a split between the masculine physical and the feminine etheric or vice versa, we have a split between our cognitive capacity and our generative capacity. So when we think today, in this day and age, we are thinking usually abstractly. Okay. That's why, that's the problem with, um, you know, most of the translations of the Bible, for example, is they're abstract translations or literal, you know, a fig leaf, <laughs> or it's metaphorical, which is abstract, okay, because you, you can't ground it to anything. So we're thinking, but 
the only people who truly have an original thought, a real thought, okay, and that's pretty rare uh, to have a real thought. We call those people geniuses. Um, they are the ones who manage to achieve what Wilhelm Reich is talking about, and that is to join the upper rational capacity, this masculine capacity, the logos might be another term for it, the logos in waiting, to join that with the nether feminine mind of imagination or Sophia. And when you put them together, you get what a friend of mine who's taught me a lot about this, Stephen Decker, called noetic ideation. Now, where does that term come from? Noetic comes from the Greek term nous. Mind. And yeah, the Greeks had, I don't know, 16, 17 words for mind. Okay, it's, it's rather strange that English is one of the few languages that has only one word. You know, people say, you know, when they say mind, the question always is, well, which mind? You know, what mind do you have in mind? <laughs> and the, the Greeks, if you read the Iliad and the Odyssey, for example, you will discover that every time in English the word says mind, you have to look it up in the Greek to find out which mind. So it could be the cordia, could be the frenes, it could be the, oh, I'm trying to think, I can't think of all of them now, I used to know them all. And what it meant then was that you were thinking back in the Greek times, you were thinking with your body, what we might call body-mind, but even the body-mind was made up of the heart, the gut, uh, the solar plexus, uh, etc. The noose gradually became the dominant term throughout Greek uh, language history. And this really represents what we could call the solar plexus, the autonomic nervous system. And so we now have this, we call it gut instinct. You know, I have a feeling, I have a gut instinct, you know, uh, et cetera. And this is, so what, what's meant in this term noetic ideation is to marry the creative generative capacity of Sophia, of wisdom, the ancient wisdom, render it conscious and allow the logos to be other than an abstract internal thinking like in a house of mirrors, you know, but to actually think a real thought. And this takes us back to what we talked about the second or in our second session, I believe, when we talked about um, the second scientific revolution. And we talked about Francis Bacon. You know, Francis Bacon got materialized and hijacked by the materialists and uh, you know, the scientific method is you just collect a lot of thoughts and then you make a hypothesis about what you see. That's not what Francis Bacon said at all. Francis Bacon said, you first need a forethoughtful inquiry or to, for a forethoughtful inquiry, you first need an idea. And that idea only comes through inspiration. And you either get inspired, you could say uh, naturally, and it just happens, you're not you know, conscious of anything, or if you're in the condition we're going to talk about in a minute of genius, then it comes to you as a result of your endeavors. So you get this inspiration of something real, what Plato called the idea. It's an archetype, you know, Jung calls them archetypes. It comes down, and as a result of that 
archetype, this guiding thought, you form all your observations and inquiries. So you don't do it after the fact, you do it before, because it guides you into understanding what you're about to see. Otherwise, you're just a blind person collecting facts and then trying to stick them together, which is material science. It gives you no meaning, (laughs) just a lot of technology. So this challenge of putting together what was split between the intellectual mind or the logos and the wisdom mind or Sophia, this is what uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge called the Logosophia. And he was always wanting to write his ultimate treatise on the Logosophia. This is the marriage of these two um, entities or aspects of ourselves that got split. And once we can do that, then we become gods because we become co-creator. We have a co-creator capacity. We can create things that were never created before. Okay, so the computer you and I are talking on, whoever created that, you know, the idea or a bunch of people that created that, that's a co-creative activity that's changed the world. So what Reich is saying, and he's talking about sexuality, and what he's saying is that we go through, in effect, two puberties, or we should. So the first puberty is one that's kind of run by nature, okay? It just happens. And you have the capacity to make babies, make physical entities. But the second puberty normally should occur roughly around the age of 18, 19, 20. And that's why, you know, usually for for some reason people don't understand is that's when we you kind of get the age of majority you know you can drink you can uh, you can fight you can buy a gun or you know whatever uh, adults do but this only happens if there is a proper marriage or docking between this nether being and this upper being now Steiner calls that the, the, the upper being and the nether entity. And he, or he calls it the downing and the upping. Because <laughs> one is coming down and the other is coming up and they're supposed to meet. And they do meet in the physical puberty. That's the first meeting. But the second one has to take place at the level of the etheric body. And so when this takes place, what happens is you get this joining of the of this dynamic capacity and this mind capacity now this is you could say what is behind all of the kind of kundalini type of exercises or the content sexuality and you know this idea of activating and bringing up this powerful energy ching energy and if you bring it up properly and unite it with the mind, then you end up with this incredible capacity to co-create. Now, of course, we're a bit like uh, little children right now. Even when we are able to do that, what we're able to create is, you know, it's like a child drawing a picture. Oh, look at you know, a picture of the sun and whatever. This is not Michelangelo or da Vinci's uh, or uh, Raphael's, you know, works. But the point is that 
we need to get to that capacity. Very few people actually get to that second puberty in, you know, in a given lifetime because it takes a lot of work to get there, to be at that capacity of genius. Most people, you know, don't, but you keep working on it because that is one of the aspects of this journey is to keep getting closer and closer to this union to dissolve this horizontal and vertical split that we have. Hi, everybody. Have you ever wondered why your blood is red? It's because it's full of oxygen and life force. It's what keeps you going. But what if I could tell you about something else that's red that will add more life force and keep you going? And if you start with a red juice before you have coffee or tea and wait a few minutes, you might find that you either don't need the coffee or the tea or you need less of it. But this time, instead of getting coffee and tea, you got a lot of nutrition and a lot of great stuff for stress management and detoxification. And it's so important. I got Drew Canole. It took me two years to get him to come <laughs> hang out with me and talk about this. I said, Drew, tell me more about your red juice. And he is right here to tell us what is on with your red juice. My kids love it. Everybody I know loves it. Well, I love that we have it for kids. Because yes. when I was a kid, there was this big red dude that would burst through a brick wall and he was like, oh yeah. And he would feed me a glass of 50 grams of sugar, <laughs> giving most people diabetes, yeah. ADHD, yeah. addiction. Obesity. Obesity, all the things, right? Mm. So when we created Red, it was, what's the alternative? Mm -hmm. If we could create something that could create lasting stamina, lasting energy. And then we started to look at our ancient ancestors. Mm -hmm. We talk about the Vikings, mm -hmm. the people that were rowing across the oceans, oceans. for days <laughs> yeah. to go to war. Yeah. What were they taking? Well, they were taking rhodiola. Yeah. Rhodiola is in our red juice. Yeah. And then we were like, okay, so out of all the mushrooms, yeah. what's one of the best medicinal mushrooms that can give us long lasting energy? We found cordyceps. Cordyceps mm. are absolutely amazing. Yes. Not just any cordyceps or rhodiola, glyphosate residue free and organic. Mm -hmm. And how can we make it taste better than the, oh yeah, yeah. you know, how do we make it taste better than that without the sugar? Yeah. We added a little monk fruit. Monk fruit's amazing. Yep. And we found the best berries on the planet. Mm. Berries in, in high amounts, which we have in the red juice, actually help increase stem cell creation in your body. Mm. What's better than that for our little ones and for us? Yes. And so many people are just lethargic. They're lacking energy. Yes. What could we do for that? Red juice in the afternoon, 2 p.m. rolls around instead of a nap, instead of the coffee. Drink the red juice. You're going to feel so much better. Well, if you need the nap, take the nap if you can, but then take the red juice to kick you back into gear. Exactly. I love naps and yeah. I love coffee. I, I do too, but I love to make sure I got the nutrition in me first. You know, the other thing is berries are a natural stimulant to the adrenal glands. So mm. if people would do a little red juice before they do coffee and tea, they would pick themselves up naturally, except this time they're bringing in nutrition. And unfortunately, coffee blocks almost every vitamin and mineral you can put in your mouth. So Hey, there you have it, right from the man himself. So if you're ready to get filled with life force energy and vitality, go to Organifi.com forward slash check 20. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com forward slash C-H-E-K two zero. And don't forget to use the promo code CHECK20 to get 20% off Organifi Red Juice and all Organifi products. That's Organifi.com forward slash check 20 
and the discount code is CHECK20. Sophia classically means wisdom, and Jung says that Sophia is God consciousness infused into matter, and that Christ consciousness is spirit. So he makes this distinction of Sophia, which he also correlates with Mercurius, the Greek god Mercury. So he says that that is that Mer- Mercury represents and Sophia represents the infusion of God consciousness into all matter, and that Christ consciousness is the correlate of spirit, or in Bohm's language, Christ consciousness relates to the implicate order, the immeasurable order of source consciousness, and the explicate order is the manifest order of what Jung is relating to Sophia. But the point that Jung's making is, and this is important because we're in this scientific materialistic environment where matter is thought to be dead and the concept, for example, of talking to a plant, uh, you know, they think you're a weirdo. So, uh, you know, shamanism and paganism are full of this sort of orientation toward nature as being conscious, not as being a dead thing. And then there's the Greek concept of entelechy, which is very much a correlate to the soul, which in, in the Greek concept is a guiding intelligence that has an aim in and of itself, so that the soul of each of us has an aim. And the example Jung gives is that the acorn always has the aim of the oak tree in it, which correlates to what you were saying, you know, each of us as a soul has an aim and and that part of our life processes, this is a lot about what my work's about is to really, you could say discover or become aware of what it is that you are here uniquely to do or to express, which shows up as your desire, which interestingly correlates to archetypes. Jung says, you don't choose archetypes, they choose you and that they act through your instincts which is your sort of primal urges to do things like a woman's instinct to become pregnant would be an expression of the mother archetype taking hold of her biology, which then rises up in her psychology as the desire to find a mate and, and be a mother. And then in alchemy, they speak of the hieros gamos, the marriage of the male and the female, which is sounds a bit like what you're calling the second puberty. And for me, having worked with this for so long, it seems to me that, you know, if you think of the, a lot of our soul nature is really within the unconscious, the conscious rational mind is, is very, you know, it's very oriented toward the ego's perception. But then we come to the realization, which I think is part of the second puberty you're talking about, that our ego keeps getting us in a lot of trouble. And usually a midlife crisis or a dark night of the soul is when somebody comes face to face with the fact that they can't just keep relying on their ego. There's got to be something deeper. And ultimately, spiritually, that leads a person to really a quest for connection to their soul. At least when I know when I work with people in a crisis like that, I'm guiding them to have a concept and understanding of and ways of relating to their soul and I'm teaching them to how to progressively settle the ego down, calm the rational mind down, or even just the thinking mind down, 
and learn how to connect with the unconscious and the subconscious. I orient the subconscious to the wisdom of the body and the unconscious to everything that's conscious in us, but we're not conscious of, which is really more soul. You know, your your soul is the in my conception, the totality of your capacity for consciousness. So it seems to me like the alchemists felt that spirit was trapped in matter and that the process of alchemy for the alchemist was to release the spirit from the matter. And so as we release the spirit from the matter and we become conscious of, of these two aspects of yourself, which you could say is the vertical needing the horizontal, that you then reach your potential and then you can more naturally fulfill your soul's guidance because what i see going on is that the ego is actually you know it's it's largely programming and it's a very big distraction for most people to really access their genius because it's always somebody else's ideas about what you should or shouldn't do or who you should or shouldn't be but ultimately if you get past that which is part of the individuation process which is you know hard for people to because you got to stand on your own. And as you know, most geniuses are, you know, tortured people. As, as Einstein says, great minds have always encountered, always encountered violent opposition from mediocre minds. And there's the saying, great pioneers are always the, you can always tell who the pioneers are because they've got arrows in their backs. So I just wanted to share those concepts and see if there's a way that maybe you can say, to us, how does those concepts correlate with everything you're sharing here? It seems to me there's parallels there. Yes, uh, there, there are many ways of describing it. One of the, the most frustrating parts of this emerging science and second scientific revolution is terminology. Science, Coleridge said the first aim of science is to settle the nomenclature. Like you can't have a conversation unless you're talking about the same thing. It'd be like, I'm speaking you're speaking Russian and we don't understand each other. But so you're sometimes using terms. I'm sometimes using terms. You know, eventually this nomenclature will get settled. It takes a long time. But to, to go back to your original point, if I remember it correctly, because you made a lot of good points there. Yes, this is what the Gnostics called the fallen Sophia. Uh, what happened in Steiner's story, you could say, is that Sophia this wisdom uh, being. It's, uh, it's part of the, uh, it's what the Gnostics called syzygies. So the Logos and Sophia were a syzygy, a pair, <laughs> and, and they got split up. Uh, Sophia went down to help the creation of the, of the earth in a certain way. And what happened is that she lost or sacrificed is the Gnostic term she sacrificed part of her capacity in order to allow, and we haven't talked about this yet, to order to allow the Luciferic influence, because we need this Luciferic influence along with the Aramanic one in order to have uh, consciousness. But the point is that she sacrificed part of her capacity, and she that capacity got poured into the creation, which then eventually materialized. So all matter, as Einstein said, radiates, or we could say all matter contains, you know, spiritual, spiritual substance, uh, dynamic substance. And so, yes, uh, the world is alive. It is unconsciously alive. So 
this is where Steiner talks about the Christ event as being the defining event in order to go from a world of unconscious wisdom to a world of conscious love. So it's one thing to be wise, but not really to be conscious. And so a lot of animals are very wise, you know, but they're not conscious. Or a lot of primitive people have incredible wisdom, but there's no consciousness there. The Logos also started a journey down. And this is the journey that's told in scripture, the journey of the I am, all the way from the beginning, you know. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And, you know, this famous beginning of uh, John, this is the first creation, interestingly enough. Not the, the one mentioned in Genesis is the second creation, because the one mentioned in John came before the one in Genesis. So the logo starts on this journey down because it knows, being the logos, it knows that something's going to happen at a certain point in this earth evolution halfway through, which is what happened in Palestine in the, you know, the fourth uh, iteration of this post-Atlantic period. We reach the bottom dead center of materialism, of materiality. And if we kept going, then we would be entombed. We would be literally uh, living in a tomb and lose our consciousness, lose everything. Which is very Aramonic. Yes, it's because of the Aramanic influence, which came in as a result of the Luciferic influence. But the point is that we reached the point, if we kept going, there's no turning back. We would have been buried in matter, and we would have lost everything. So we had to reverse course. So this other influence had to come in. And this is what the Gnostics refer to as the rescue of Sophia, a fallen Sophia by the Logos. And that's kind of what uh, Coleridge was picking up on. So you're right. You mentioned the ego structure. The ego structure is given to us as a temporary guardian until we wake up. It's like if, you're, if your real physical parents died and you were appointed a guardian by the courts, and the guardian tells you what you can do, what you can spend your money on, and everything else until you come of age. Well, technically, it's, you know, 18 or whatever. But in spiritual terms, you may never come of age. You may never wake up and be able to claim your birthright. So what Reich was telling us is that from a purely biological, but he also extended it into the mind, he understood that, from a biological mind perspective, this should occur around 18, 19. And then what happens is the ego dies. But what emerges is the self, the true self. The true self has been quiet and quiescent until now, but it wakes up and it starts on a journey of consciousness, mind and consciousness. And it gains more and more consciousness because you're right. Most of our mind is unconscious. Some is subconscious, and that's what Jung was trying to plumb. And, but most of it is unconscious and subconscious. And what we are conscious of is very little. But we start on this journey. And once we start on this journey, we gain more and more consciousness along with self-consciousness. So we're able to look at ourselves objectively. 
I remember the day that I was kind of born in a sense where I was able to look at myself rather objectively. It was quite a revelation and a shock because until then we don't, we see everybody else and we end up blaming everybody else. And <laughs> yeah. you know, this, is, this is the victim mentality that we have. Everybody else is at fault, not us. We're, I always thought I was the perfect person, you know, like, I'm great. I'm a nice guy. I never say anything bad or yell at anybody or, you know, do anything bad. But everyone else is at fault. And then the day your ego dies and you wake up in your true self, you gain a, a great measure of humility, which is, ooh, I look back on myself and I thought I was quite a SOB at times. And I could be very controlling. I could be very nasty. I could be very, you know, this or that. All sorts of dark things that I didn't really want to see. This is what uh, Wright calls a silent observer status. You're able to step back and see yourself doing what you're doing and assess it objectively. Because none of us are perfect. Even when the ego dies and the true self emerges, we still make mistakes. We still you know, do things through trial and error. But increasingly, we are guided by truth. We're guided by our desire function that you mentioned. Okay, now what's that desire function? Well, that's love. Because we have this term love and it's, you know, rather either abstract, oh, I love this, I love that, and love, you know, makes the world go around. What does that mean? What it means is that the moment we left wisdom in the Garden of Eden, where we were encased in this wisdom, we knew everything, but we knew nothing because consciously anyway. And we start on this journey where we start forgetting everything and knowing nothing and yet slowly gaining consciousness about things. So we're like little kids. We just know a little bit, you know, a little bit. And as we grow, we gain more and more consciousness. But what drives our journey is this desire function. And this desire function wants to join up with this or that and not that. This is what Steiner calls antipathy and sympathy. And this is what in scripture is called the law of love and the law of hate. So Christ said, you must hate as well as love. Well, no one ever preaches the law of hate. I think because it's because it's, a bad word. I think it's just very confusing for people. Well, hate is, it, moralistically, hate is a bad word. You can't hate anything. So let's use the words of sympathy and antipathy. That's a better term. Okay, it takes away the moralism. So the law of antipathy is you must get rid of what scripture is called the familiars. You must get rid of blood ties. You must get rid of uh, things that no longer serve a purpose. You must, anything that doesn't resonate with your desire function, you must let go. And the desire function is is the entelechy. Uh, it's, it's, it's really the, the inner compass is how I refer to it. It's what... When you were created as a separated, individuated unit of Adam, okay, because Adam is multiplying, um, part of that total wisdom and desire of Adam, because the wisdom was there, but also the desire, the nahash, the, the so-called serpent, is included. So we have this burning desire to do something, go somewhere, see things, do things, etc. That's unique. 
because your piece is different from everybody else's piece. And that's reflected in your DNA physically, but it's also spiritually, it's unique. You're going to do something for creation that no one else can do. So your desire function is what motivates you and you're guided by this resonance. So you stay away from things that don't resonate properly. So you have antipathy and you go towards things. You're drawn to things that you have sympathy for because they're going to help your unfold your desire function. Yes. And I, I think too, we, we go into sympathetic resonance. I mean, the sympathy is resonance and it's like we lock on. And, and I, I want to bring up an important point. This is, this has been one of the biggest challenges of my life. And it's not just me because I've studied the biographies over 150 of the world's greatest thinkers. And I see this as a parallel. And I also, know people that are similar to me in this regard. And I think we all have it to some degree, but we don't realize what's going on. But I think it's more profound for those who come into a state of alignment after the second puberty you're talking about, where they actually begin to listen to their soul. But when I look back on my life, I can identify at about the age of 22 when I suddenly realized what I was here to do in the world, which came about as I was the trainer of the army boxing team. And it started opening me and unlocking me and, 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 and my desire, my compass start, you know, got a steady solid North pole. And I then had the sympathy antipathy for anything that got in my way. The sympathy was, I know what I'm supposed to do. The antipathy was don't, get in my way with, and I don't want to hear about a bunch of small stuff. You know, I, I don't, there's things I just don't care about because they're not important to me. And where I, why I'm bringing this up is because one of the biggest challenges is for me. And I think, you know, I've done a lot of work in my lifetime and I've produced quite a lot and I couldn't do it if I was distracted by all this fluffy stuff that everybody's into. You know, everyone's watching the Super Bowl. I couldn't give a shit. You know, everyone's talking about stuff that I, I don't care about. TV, soap operas, who's screwing who? It's like, I don't, no interest to me. But wh why I'm bringing this up specifically is because one of the biggest challenges I've had in relationships, both with women, with wives, with children, with coworkers is that there's this very powerful sense of of I know why I'm here and I know what I'm here to do and I know what it takes to do it and it is a very very powerful presence inside of me and I actually feel well I feel like I'm going in the wrong direction or I'm off or I'm wasting time or I'm doing the wrong thing and it can create a lot of problems for me in relationship because like it's hard for me as much as i know i need to 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 do a lot of daddy stuff i find it very very hard to pull myself away from the guidance the the presence of that entelechy that guiding purpose and so it's taken a lot of discipline for me and a lot of support from angie and penny to help me find that balance between, because it, sometimes I feel like I'm bordering on what Jung calls an archetypal possession, where I'm so fully immersed in what I came here to do that I can be so 
much of a lone ranger that I actually get stressed by. Like I cannot handle being around social relationships very long. I, Penny can tell you, I never go to conference dinners and stuff because I just feel irritated by hanging around talking about what I call stupid shit. You know, I don't, I don't stuff. I just couldn't give a damn about, you know, I, I'm like, Penny, I would rather be at home studying this pile of books that I know I need to get through because there's information that I need in there. So I'm bringing this up, Rudy, because I'm wanting to hear what your thoughts are. How, how do you suggest somebody who is aligned with their soul, who does have this burning desire, navigate the world without it damaging relationships because it is not an easy thing to na to navigate when you have what I have and some of the there's only a few people I know that really have that and they all suffer from the same thing yeah it, you raise a very important issue first of all this is what uh, scripture calls being in the world but not of the world <laughs> there you go that's that's exactly what the monks told me yeah the first thing you you feel, of course, is alienation because you're going on a journey. Before you were encased in a kind of uh, unconscious community, whether it was ethnic, uh, geographical, religious, doesn't matter. You, you're you just grow up inside something and you just take on. Oh, this is what we do. This is what we say. And you know, you and one day, yes, you wake up. But the moment you wake up, the first thing you experience is alienation, because now you're different. You've separated yourself from all those people who are asleep. This is what in scripture they talk about, the quick and the dead. There are those who have life and those who have no life. They're, they're walking around, but we call them zombies, but or NPC, non-programmable characters. <laughs> or fully, fully programmed characters. <laughs> Yeah, we're, 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 we're programming ourselves. We kind of wake up and uh, we're like Pinocchio, you know, we, we suddenly come alive and, and we start having thoughts and feelings. And, and this puts you at odds immediately with the vast mass simply because you see things they don't see, you hear things they don't hear. So this is why Christ is always saying, for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, well, they all did, but they didn't have the right eyes and ears, so they didn't hear. That's why he spoke in parables, because they, they couldn't. But to his followers, he spoke in a deeper way. Same with Paul. So that's the state of waking up, is you feel alienation. But that's normal. That's healthy. You should feel alienation. Now, the other part that is we could say par for the course, to, to borrow a sports analogy, although I don't play golf, um, is we also are going to be thrown into doubt, into confusion, into conflict. Why? Because your thinking and acting out of your conscious mind, which represents maybe 1% of your mind, and what's going on in the background is still operative, and it's going to put you in situations, get you to do things, get involved in relationships that you have no idea why, but they're part of your karma. And that's operative through that, that subconscious, unconscious mind of yours. 
And you're intended as a result of your karma to get into certain relationships, certain conflicts, so everything you mentioned between, you know, kids and family and my work and, you know, all of this, that's your karma. Okay. There is no resolution except to work it through. You were intended to be in that conflict. You were intended to be pulled both ways so that you could bring that conflict into your consciousness and find a resolution that reflects your desire function. Okay. Now, what that resolution is, no one can tell you. You have to find it for yourself. No one can say, well, you should spend more time with your family. You should do this or, you know, don't have kids or do have kids or you're the only one that can decide what resonates with your desire function. The other thing to keep in mind is that not all relationships are forever. In no. fact, most are not. Yes, true. So your relationship with a book, your relationship with a thought, your relationship with me, with your wives, with your kids, they're not forever. Because as long as we're journeying along the same path with the same desire function, and, you know, seems to be because we have good conversations. And uh, Stephen Decker would say conversation means turning together. What's turning together? The, the chakras. So your chakra, my chakra, we're not kind of looking at each other like, oh, he's weird. What's he talking about? You know, et cetera. There's, there's this turning together. But at some point, that turning together will end because you're going off your desire function a different way and I'm going off a different way. Same with your kids. Same with your, your wives or your friends or, you know, your social relationships. But that's all par for the course. So if it's not there, I'd be very surprised. Then you'd be an ascended master and you wouldn't be talking to me, right? <laughs> I'd be talking to everybody. <laughs> well, yeah, but you would be ascended. You know, you wouldn't need to be doing what we're doing. Hello, my friends and fellow world workers. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I'm happy to announce that the Czech Academy enrollment is now open. We are limited to 100 spaces for this next intake, so apply early. If you would like a preview of what you will learn in the Czech Academy, I've got great news. The open house is back. It's free for you to take a sneak peek at the Czech Academy e-learning platform where you'll be able to take select lessons from our online courses, including Integrated Movement Science 1, Online, and HLC2, that's Holistic Lifestyle Coaching Level 2 Online. Preview our Academy-exclusive online workshops. Check out our Academy business assets, such as package templates and client onboarding checklists, and more. If you're ready to master yourself and share your love and wisdom in the world and help others get healthy and live their dreams, go to chek.group forward slash open house L number 4D. That's check dot group forward slash open house l the number four d it's not case sensitive there has never been a better more important time for a career in holistic health and i'm excited to be able to join you and support you in living your dreams the other thing to keep in mind is that once you're in this exploratory universe that uh, Wright calls the silent observer, you know, like you're just observing, you can talk to anyone. 
about anything. Because if you're in a certain situation, I have a neighbor down the street, you know, I bought recently just because I like to do some target practice, I bought a, a an air gun. And it wasn't working properly. So he's a, a gun enthusiast. So I go down and say, hey, you know, my gun's not working properly. I have great conversations with him about nothing, nothing that's related to my desire function. But somewhere in my desire function is this need to go down and make connections. I, I just accept it. And I don't, yeah, there are other things I have no interest in at all. I have no interest in going to a sports game or this or that. But sometimes I just get the feeling Oh, that might be a nice experience. So this you have to figure out for yourself. But the key is, and you know, I've been through this as well, so I'm not speaking from any you know elevated position, is our ego can still get in the way. You know, we can amplify certain aspects of our life and above others, partly out of ego. And so we have to sometimes step back a bit and say, is this really me and my desire function or is this just my ego? Because I'll give you a good example of this. Uh, when I first studied Reich, I got so excited. You know, this, uh, the term that uh, one, one writer mentioned about Fichte, you know, he, he, he read something by Kant and he traveled halfway across Germany to meet Kant because his hair was on fire. Like he was literally so you know excited by this what he was reading that his hair you know uh, figuratively was on fire well i read reich and my hair was on fire it was like oh my god so i i sat down at a computer for three months writing everything i could to put it in my own way and try to understand it and i was almost finished uh, my daughter brought me a cup of tea and she spilled it over my keyboard uh -oh. fried my yeah, fried my keyboard. And I hadn't, I'd been typing for three hours that day and I hadn't saved at any point. You know, I didn't have automatic save. I had to do it and I forgot. And it, I was devastated. I bet. But then I was able to go into my silent observer status. Says, oh, what was that all about? The universe obviously was kind of telling me I was rushing things. I was, we might, in sexual terms, call it premature ejaculation. You know, <laughs> yes, I understand that very well. So it's like, okay, calm down. It wasn't time. You're rushing, forcing something. So I've learned to have a lot of patience about when things are supposed to happen. I know what I want to happen, but scripture promises us we will always get what needs to happen, not what we want to happen. So let's be careful that our ego can kind of try to push. And this is the, unfortunately, the Aramanic uh, influence, uh, which is behind premature ejaculation, is this, this desire to bring something to the fore before it's time. And, and th this is what we're witnessing now in, and to come back to this whole idea of the, uh, the feminine and masculine and what's going on now in all this gender dysphoria is that as Steiner points out, we're entering a phase of the opening of the astral body. Okay, spirit, spirit self. And this opening of the astral body is creating a tremendous amount of confusion because before it was unified. Now it's being split. Well, when anything's split, there's a lot of confusion. You know, you don't have a whole sense. So now we get 
you know, people thinking there's something different, you know, even even down to furry animals or, or whatever. So this is part of this process. However, if you look at the forced trans, you, you know, transhumanism or the force, you know, from male to female, forcing it in the in physical genitalia and, and not making distinction between sex and gender. You know, the, the two are totally different. But this, this forced, you know, it's being forced and the whole agenda is being forced. Then you, you know, Ehrman's behind that because he's trying to get ahead of the curve so that he can bend it to his purpose, which is materialism. So transhumanism is just burying you in the matrix. And, and all this gender dysphoria that's being pushed down to age of three, children can decide, you know, what gender they are, et cetera. Or even the babies know, or I read somewhere, oh, babies now know which gender they are. <laughs> the point is, the point of that is to destroy sexuality. Why? Because the power you will have as a co-creator with God comes from the maturation of this sexuality. If you can combine a mature sexuality with the logos, nobody can touch you. You're, you're powerful. You can say mountain move and it'll move kind of thing. So the key is that this is all being rushed because it's trying to destroy what is meant to happen as we go through this transformation of the astral body. So there's a tremendous amount of confusion. The reason I kind of wanted to talk about this is that if people uh, Steiner says over and over again, if we understand we're free, people, if they understand what's going on, cannot get caught up in the, the fear, the confusion, the reflex actions to what's going on, to understand there is a deeper process going on that has to take place and not put a moralism on it, you know, that's good or bad. This is what needs to take place for our evolution, but also to better understand why this is emerging in this rather strange form we have is being pushed on us because that's the, the aromatic forces or that's their agenda. But the, the way you get out from under the aromatic forces is precisely, as Steiner says, to understand. Once you understand something, airmen has no power over you. So this is why they're talking about misinformation, disinformation, controlling the mass media, you know, shadow banning people or, you know, the, the, it's because the more people understand, the less control that they have. Totally. So it all together. But the key to it is they're afraid of the generative power because it gives you a power that they have no control over. Because the way you activate that power, as we're told in scripture, is you activate the Christ consciousness in you, and not in a religious sense, but this power that was brought down to rescue the fallen Sophia, this, this unconscious wisdom, and lift it up into the human mind above nature, as Coleridge would say, and create you as a genius, meaning you now have the power of a creator. All of this needs to be shut down as far as Araman is concerned. And that not that interesting? Because without your model of conception that you're describing, in my Lucifer Christ Araman podcast, as you know, the last hour and a half was really focusing on 
how to be aware of the Christ consciousness and how to deal with the forces of Lucifer and Eremon that are not necessarily outside of you, but they're inside of you. They're outside of you because they're in other people. They're outside of you because they're in the creation of nature. But really, the place we have to, to manage them is on the inside of ourselves. And that was the whole thrust, really, of what I was trying to bring people to is, is an awareness of not the story of Jesus of Nazareth, because that's very confusing, but an understanding of Christ consciousness as the Tao, as the pivot of the Tao, as the balancing force. You know, and, and I quoted Steiner a couple of times saying that, you know, we all have to navigate the waves of Lucifer and Aramon on the ocean of consciousness in our Christ boat. And, and really what you're saying along these lines is when you're conscious of this process and you're aware in yourself, then you're not so easily thrown around. And I think that the other thing too is that when you reach a certain point in your own spiritual evolution, you lose your fear of death and it's not easy to control people that aren't afraid to die. And that's that's their big leverage arm. That's what they use to get people to do all sorts of stuff. And without, whether it be threats of viruses or bombs or wars or whatever, it's it's always leveraging around the fear of death and that moves people more powerfully than almost anything so i think yeah airman's power is in fear wherever you see fear used whether it's in the allopathic medical system the gov the way governments run things you know it's aromantically controlled because the christ conscious is all about love you do something because you love it it motivates you you resonate with it and and that's the only thing you need you don't need to be told um, you know, by through fear. That's then there's an aromantic agenda going on. But the the key is that yes, the Steiner does uh, characterize in in many places the Christ consciousness as the mediator between Araman and Lucifer. But it's a little more nuanced than that in the sense that he also says that on the cross. The two thieves, those are Araman and Lucifer, because they're thieving, they're, they're stealing stuff from us. The one thief repented, you could say. He, he literally accepted the role of Christ, and, he, and Christ said, on this day you will be in paradise with me. And so Lucifer, his reign ended. Now, that doesn't mean the effects and the Luciferic spirits that he generated have ended. It just means Lucifer is now no longer you know, against the Christ consciousness, working with the Christ consciousness. So the enemy now is Araman, and Araman is actually not in us. It's outside of us. It's what doesn't allow us to see reality. Lucifer was inside, but Araman is, is working on the outside. So that's why we look at a tree, all we see is the tree. But traditional ancient peoples didn't see a tree, they saw the spirit of the tree. Yeah, but because I studied extensive amounts of Steiner's writing on Lucifer and Aramon and even did a, a course on it, it was a Steiner-based course, Steiner clearly stated, Lucifer enters us through the fire and air elements, and Aramon enters us through the earth and the water elements, which are inherent within us as a soul. They're a part of us. Yes, they're influenced. They're influenced. But he also said, anyway, these are just these are just uh, distinctions. But the, the the real point I wanted to make was that the generative power is 
what we need, not just to create a balance between these polarities. The generative power is what we need to transform the karmic issues we have within us that allow those polaric forces to work on us. Okay, as long as we have these these issues in our subconscious and unconscious creating conflicts or whatever, then we are prey to one or the other. So the activation of the Christ consciousness in us is actually the activation of a new kind of generative power. So the 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 Old Testament is all about pro- procreation. You know, go forth and multiply, make lots of babies. The New Testament doesn't talk about that at all. It's all about co-creation. It's all about this power of creation in the mind. So this ties in with what Steiner's saying, that down the road, eventually, there will be no more male-female physical split. They will, they will join back together again, and then there will eventually be no more reincarnation. So this is you know, part of the journey. But this is what's happening, is that we're moving more and more away from procreation. Look at the fertility rates. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, sure, yes, uh, pollution and you know other factors and everything else, but everything is part and parcel of a of an underlying thought of the supernatural hierarchies, and so it's moving in the direction of less and less procreation and more and more co-creation. But to do that, you have to activate this capacity within yourself, which any of us who've wakened, awakened, or woken up have done. Now, the question is, how far can you take that in a given lifetime? You know, that, that's going to vary from person to person. But that's what you're doing. In your work, in my work, we're trying to grow and mature and activate to the best of our ability in a given lifetime. But, you know, my ability might be like a two-year-old you know, in terms of, okay, that's all I can do. You know, it, it's the hierarchies up there are cheering and everything, just like the parents cheering the child, you know, crawling or standing up for the first time. And But we have to keep in mind that our capacity is still very infantile. So this is where the humility comes in, in a sense, to get back to your point, that we every now and then we have to step back and just kind of accept that maybe... It's not going to happen in my time frame. <laughs> you know, we have to kind of trust to a certain extent that it will happen, maybe not in this lifetime. Like everything I'm doing now and talking about, etc. I have faintest idea how many people will listen or it'll have an influence on or whatever, but it doesn't matter because it's my consciousness is going to enter into the etheric consciousness of the earth and it's going to have an influence so that subsequent uh, people uh, incarnating are going to have that thought without having to go through all the work I went through. I noticed this in my students. You probably noticed it in yours that ideas that took me a long time to get people to understand 20 years ago, now the students are picking it up very quickly. So something's changing in the, in the consciousness. You know, there, there's this kind of growth of understanding that's very subtle, but it's taking place. So anyway, I've learned for my purpose to have a lot more patience about what I can do. Make happen. It takes time. And in Rupert Sheldrake's research on the morphogenic field showed that there's a faster learning curve with every generation that learns something. So 
even exactly. even did tests with people in in school taking tests and he showed whenever they implemented a new test the students didn't do as well but each time the test was run the grades had a tendency to get higher because the there was a shall we say a field effect and people would learn from that they were all we were learning from people taking tests whether we knew them or not Exactly. And that's, you know, have you seen the, 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 the little two-year-old that's operating the iPhone? Yes. I mean, my, my, does kids, that come? my kids know how to run phones better than I do. But that's, you're right. So in a sense, that gives me a tremendous amount of optimism. I'm not in such a rush or, you know, I used to be, but I'm less so in the sense that I understand this is all going to happen in God's time, in the spiritual hierarchical, hierarchical time, and not necessarily mine. I just do the best I can. But it doesn't mean I'm not in conflict, doesn't mean I'm be not being pulled in different directions, because that's the nature of earth life, is that we're always going to be in a bit of conflict. We're always going to have some internal activity that gets us into situations we haven't the faintest idea why we got into those situations and how do we deal with them because we're in those situations to learn how to deal with them so you're in a situation to learn how to deal with these conflicting demands on you well one of the things i wanted to share but i i was just didn't want to interrupt you was two things you talked about the feeling of isolation when when people are aligned with their soul their purpose their desire alienation, alienation is I, I actually never felt alienated when I'm alone doing what I love to do. It's only when I'm around people that don't understand me or think I'm crazy or, you know. Well, it's, alienation's always in reference to something outside. You're absolutely right. When you're doing what you're doing, you don't feel alienated because you're, you're inside your whole and your desire function. But if you look out, you realize you're alienated. Right. Yeah. And, 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 and of course, people's views of you are often alien. I mean, I've been attacked for a million things, called a million things, accused of running a cult and all this sort of silly shit. But uh, the other thing, you know, is, is the way I handle my ego processes. I always just ask my soul, you know, I want to do this. Should I do it? You know, right. I try to do that with everything. I mean, I, I literally ask my soul what clothes to wear. I practice, practice, practice so that when conflict or challenge comes, I don't have to be concerned whether or not it's my ego or my soul guiding me, you know, because you, you can't yes, learn absolutely. to connect to your soul. And whenever there's a uh, an ego conflict going on, you got to start with things that are unimportant to the ego. And then when it, when it comes to the sort of social challenge I described to you, I've asked my soul, you know, why, why is it so important for me to spend time with people that, that, you know, whether I love them or not, or, you know, go, go be with other people. And my soul told me, because if you get too isolated, you won't understand who it is that you're here to help. You have to be able to spend time. Uh, it's just like when I, Sometimes Penny will say to me, she'll see me studying dogmatic Christianity and all these other things. She's like, why in the world do you bother with that stuff? I say, I have to understand the disease in order to be an effective healer. So I have to, you know, so it, the point is, my soul's told me is as uncomfortable as it is for you, these are the very people you have to understand because they're the ones you're here to help. So try not to see it as a discomfort. If, you, if it makes it easier for you, see it as a study. <laughs> 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and Steiner would agree with you is that you need to understand something without a prejudgment or without an initial antipathy or sympathy. It's just you listen, you read, and then you start having reactions. Now, those reactions give you the experience. Is this something I want, you know, a need or not need, etc. But if you have a, a rejection of something, you can't learn. So reading things that don't agree with your particular view of or understanding is very stimulating simply because it allows you to refine your understanding, to, you know, cha- get it challenged and, oh, I didn't know that. And uh, I've had that happen many times in my life. You know, someone comes up with something, I think, oh, I hadn't thought about that. And because we only are given to understand what we can handle given our consciousness. But the more we challenge our mind, the more we go into areas we don't know or, you know, or maybe because of some hidden belief system we have we're antithetical to, the more our consciousness will grow. And then we're able to put that which we previously take fundamental Christianity, you could say there's a reason it's there, okay? It's reflecting something. It's uh, allowing certain persons to go through a certain experience. You know, there, everything has a meaning in the universe. And we are promised in the end when, when we find ourselves again and become whole, the second Adam. So Christ is the first second Adam, <laughs> you know, the, we will, it'll all be revealed to us. So we go, oh yeah, that's why that was there. That's why that was there. It all had a purpose in God's creation. So once you understand that, you go, okay, I need to go through this experience of, I don't understand this. Where does this come from? I can't relate to that, et cetera, et cetera, to understand why it's there and why you needed to explore it because it's activating something in you that is raising your consciousness. And that's very valuable. So yes, if you don't read newspapers or articles, uh, only ones that agree with your point of view, you don't learn anything. I always go, well, why are they saying this? Well, what's their argument about that? And what's their point purpose and what's the role? So Steiner goes into many lectures about all materialism has a purpose and sophism has a purpose. You know, everything that's come up has a purpose. It's just a question of you have to decide based on your desire function. We come back to that again. What you need at this stage in your journey and your level of consciousness, what you need in order to further activate yourself. And you're absolutely right. Everything else that doesn't meet that requirement, you just set aside. You know, you can't handle everything. It's you can only handle what you need. And and there's no morality there. That's called ethics. You know, what is ethical is what resonates with your desire function. And what resonates with your desire function is entirely in accord with the, you know, mosaic code, we could say. You know, you're you're not going to kill someone else or rob or defraud or whatever, because that's not part of your God-given desire function. But the point is that you act ethically. So let's say you decided to, uh, you know, divorce one of your wives or something um, because that your paths are going different ways and it's ethical. But someone may say, according to a certain belief system, it's not moral. 
but has nothing to do with morality. It has to do with ethics, meaning what is resonant with your desire function. But your your obligation is to figure out what that is, not let the ego get in the way, but just, oh no, this really is what I need to do. I'm on a I'm on a journey and only things that resonate are going to now. Resonance doesn't mean everything is hunky dory because you can be in a resonant relationship and it can shake you up and uh, cause some unpleasantness, but it's part of the resonance in a dissonant kind of way. You have consonance and dissonance, just like in music. So you need both those. So you have to separate out what is no longer resonant versus something that's just going through a period of dissonance. And so it's like I, I felt at one point I need to get out of my previous job when I woke up and I just wanted to run, but I realized I couldn't. And also I came to the realization that I had to wait for it to be the right time. You know, it wasn't me that decided that it would happen when it happened. And in the three years I still spent there, I learned a tremendous amount. It was amazing. Once my eyes were open, I could just it was like going to school and learning about things. And so that was why it didn't happen right away. It took three years for me to get enough knowledge, I guess, as far as the hierarchies are concerned, in order to then eventually move away from that and into you know what I do now. But the point is, there's a, always a certain conflict between what we think needs to happen and what what actually is going to happen. Because the, the the hierarchies that are guiding us, our angels and archangels, they have a better understanding of our need than we do. But but we have to struggle to, as you say, to to find out what resonates with our soul, with our inner inner heart's desire. It's never easy. It's always a learning process. Hi, everybody. I'm sure you've heard me bragging about Paleo Valley over the years of listening to my podcast, and there's a very good reason for that. Not only do I love the genius of Autumn Smith, a holistic nutritionist, but her products are phenomenally good. My kids love them, I love them, and we all use them every day. My students love them, my clients love them, and they are absolutely top notch. One of my kids' favorite snacks is Paleo Valley's Bone Broth in chocolate. They love to make their hot chocolate drink themselves simply by whisking up collagen-rich protein powder in a mug of hot water. And I'm happy to let them indulge as I know it is packed full of great nutrition for them in the disguise of a sweet treat. Even us big kids love our sweet treats. And isn't it great when we can enjoy something that not only tastes great, but is truly great for us? Paleo Valley's 100% Grass-fed bone broth protein is the only of its kind made from truly grass-fed cows raised on pesticide-free grass pastures. It's made from bones, not hides, slowly simmered to extract the proteins and nutrients. Gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, and dairy-free, the chocolate mix includes organic coconut milk powder, organic cacao bean, organic monk fruit that makes a sweet, creamy, delicious drink that my kids, family, and friends just can't get enough of. You can also add to smoothies, use it in baking, or mix it with your coffee for a healthy mocha treat. Paleo Valley's bone broth protein is also available in vanilla and unflavored. To try Paleo Valley's excellent bone broth protein and save 15% on your purchase, go to paleovalley.com forward slash lowercase chek 
No promo is required. That's P-A-L-E-O. V-A-L-L-E-Y dot com forward slash C-H-E-K 15 to get your 15% discount as a Living 4D listener. No promo code is required. And I promise you, not only will you love this stuff, your kids will love it. You can giggle and laugh because they think they're getting a sweet dessert right before bed, but they will love it and sleep great. And boy, do we parents love it when our kids sleep great. Enjoy Paleo Valley's amazing products. One of the things that helps me navigate the world is, is, well, two things. One, I think one of the challenges of religion is the objectification of God and the belief that people think that they know what God is and what God wants, which, as you surely know, led Nietzsche to proclaim God is dead. But for me, the deeper I've gone into my spiritual development and my understanding of God, the more I have come to terms with the fact that what we call God is is an absolute mystery. And that I think people try to objectify God, make claims about God and create belief systems because mysteries are very challenging for the ego because it always wants a destination, a sense of safety, security, and control. And I've just grown you know, having also done a lot of very, very deep shamanic journeys where you just completely lose control and you, you know, fortunately for me, I'm like, I have my soul to guide me. And, and, and I, I mean, I think the difference between going into a state of psychosis in the depth of ceremony that I've done and not is that some people don't, they get in deep and they don't have a guide. And so you're, you know, your, your psyche is being obliterated. And your unconscious is just flooding you. And, and it's such a vast experience and so powerful. And it carries a lot of polarity in it, too. You can have very blissful experiences and very, very dark and scary experiences, not only at a personal level, but at a relational level and a collective level. You know, I've had experiences of being merged into the collective unconscious. And I'll tell you what, it is not for the lighthearted. But the point I'm driving at is that I think what I feel grateful for is I've reached this relationship with God where. I understand the unknowability. You cannot have a rational knowability of God. And, and I think people also try to, to objectify God as a form of palliative medicine for the fear of the fact that God is a mystery. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, th- the problem we're up against, again, is nomenclature. We use this term God, which is, comes from the ancient Persian Goda. And it's an abstraction. It, it, it means everything and nothing. And so it's very convenient. You say, well, God, I believe in God. You don't believe in God. God did this. God did that. But the science part of it would say, okay, you've got to tighten up your nomenclature. And this is where uh, Steiner comes in with his uh, reiteration of the ancient wisdom of the spiritual hierarchies, as well as the uh, the Trinity. And the Trinity is simply a logical necessity for anything to exist as a an actual activity you need three okay two's not enough you need three this is what Reich discovered so there's a trinity and there's the father son the holy spirit well those are just names but the father is the the prime mover 
The Son is the activity and the Holy Spirit, you could say, is the dynamic interaction that occurs, you know, between them. And that's what creates and infuses the whole universe. Then you get the heavenly hierarchy. So when you go to Genesis, what do you get? It doesn't say God. It says Elohim. That's in the Hebraic. Well, Elohim are in the spiritual hierarchy of the spirits of form, the excusi. And that's what you find in the in the Greek. So we know this is at the level of the spirits of form, which is the lowest level of the second hierarchy, spiritual hierarchy. Then you get the mention of Sherubim, Seraphim, you know, or some of the others. And Paul talks about, you know, we're not battling against flesh and blood. We're get battling against powers and principalities. Well, the powers are the dynamite, which is the level above the excusi. And the principalities are the one below, uh, which are the archai. And so, you know, and then, then it starts to become scientific. It's not a belief system anymore. It's sort of, ah, these are all powers and forces and energies that are doing things. And this power and force energy group did this, and this group is doing that. And now we have a, a kind of uh, true cosmology of physics, a physics cosmology of all, instead of the abstract one, we have this powerful one. So say there's no God doesn't mean much because God doesn't mean anything. There's no meaning to it. But to turn around and say, there's no excuse, there's no Elohim, then you've got a, another problem because, you know, once you set out the wisdom understanding, talking about Sophia, the unconscious wisdom, that's what's come out of this. And Steiner's making it conscious. And by making it conscious, it's allowing us to use it, that understanding, and, and activate this journey back upwards. Then you're no longer in, I believe it or don't believe it, or exists or doesn't exist. It's this is how things work. This is a very deep understanding. It makes sense. Like I'm, I'm a very uh, skeptical person and I don't accept things just because someone says it, but if it makes sense against something else that I understand and have verified, and then that makes sense against that. Like truth never contradicts itself. It's always building and connecting and filling in. That doesn't mean we know all the details or I know everything. It just, I only know what my consciousness right now allows me to know. But everything that I talk about, it's like, yeah, that, that all is part of the logos. It's logical. It makes sense. It helps explain this. It helps explain that, etc. So that's why I never believed in God. It's, you know, God doesn't exist as far as I'm concerned. What does exist is this universe and these powers, forces, and energies. And this is the dynamics, ex, dynamic physics explanation of how it all works and what the meaning is, et cetera, et cetera. And again, most of that I haven't come up with. I'm not the genius. You know, I came up, come up through Steiner because I think he's, the most comprehensive in a modern sense. Not that there aren't great descriptions in the ancient Indian, Persian, Egyptian documents, but in the modern sense for the modern consciousness, which needs to be a scientific explanation, he's the one that started this whole process of spiritual science, okay, of 
this is how it works and it all interrelates and that ties in with uh in a very real way with what we talked about the past the previous time about the second scientific revolution so you could say that you know what i do with my practice and homeopathy heilkunst or whatever you say oh it's just all magic well to the, to someone who doesn't understand the science behind it it is magic to someone who understands the science there's nothing magical about it and yet it can do wonders it can move mountains you know metaphorically at this point in human organisms that things that are deemed not possible okay well how is that possible well there's the science behind it it's not it's not just something that happens like for example uh, they've done lots of um, scientific studies about identical twins and uh, they find that one twin something happens emotionally and the other twin could be a thousand two thousand miles away the instantly no now that's an empirical fact for them but they have no way of explaining how that works now rupert sheldrake was trying to explain that you know that you mentioned this uh, there's this field uh, right calls it the uh, the orgone you know and rupert sheldrake the morphogenic field it used to be called the uh, what did uh, einstein call it the eth- the ether that used to be the term. So there's this there's this etheric field that Steiner would say that exists, and we're there's no space and time in that field. We're all connected instantly. That's why you could see the you know let your life flashes before you because you know once you're out of space and time, you just take in everything at the same time. So all of this is is just when it's science then you get a different kind of understanding, but you can explain it. It's not just, well, shit happens. You know, oh, it happened. Yeah. Well, why did it happen? That's my interest. How did it happen? How yeah, can you explain those, it? Uh, that's my questions too. The key is, yeah, you're absolutely right, is is you, you need, uh, we need to understand, and your journey to understanding is very admirable because you ask a lot of questions, you do a lot of reading, uh, you're willing to listen to a lot of different things and it's going to, you have to come to your own understanding for what you need for your, your journey, your desire function. Same as for me. That's what I love about, a, you know, my podcast is, is because I get to spend time asking people like you and, and others that have a very deep level of commitment to their desire function, to their path, to their inner guidance system and have penetrated very deeply into different things. And, um, you know, I I can spend a couple hours with you and it can save me reading a lot of books, you know, and also I can't, it's hard to ask a book a question, you know, but I can ask you a question. So I also think that's what's missing in our education systems is we don't get enough exposure to people that have real genuine depth of knowledge and experience. So we get people that are just regurgitating stuff out of textbooks. And and the main reason I left school is because nobody can answer my questions. And I actually got uh, ridiculed for asking questions by teachers. And so I lost faith in them. You know, I just said, why am I here? You know, because there is no educational system. It doesn't (laughs) exist. What What you have is an, is an instructional system. You're instructed. And so questions aren't welcome, uh, you know, in, inquiries aren't welcome. Challenges aren't and, welcome. 
challenges aren't welcome. A true educational system using the uh, the original Greek and Latin term, as Plato said and Socrates, true education is to pull out of each individual person that which they have in them, but is in the unconscious and needs to be rendered conscious. So you're doing your own educational program. You're engaging yourself in activities and reading and these podcasts and other things in order to bring out that which is already in you, but you're trying to make it conscious. And hoping that hoping that it's helping others do the same, you know, it can't but help others. The thing is, you don't know who it helps. That's why, you you know, this is what's called the remnant in scripture is you don't know, but whatever you do, is bound to benefit a certain group of people that are meant to be benefited by that. But you may never meet them, uh, know about them, whatever. Like, I don't know everybody who might listen to my podcast, or you don't know everybody who might listen to one of your, read one of your books. You don't know that. And it doesn't matter because the point is you're doing it simply not because you're trying to sell thousands of books or get millions of viewers, you're doing it because you want it. You want to know, and in your wanting to know, you're sharing that with everybody right. else. Yes, I'm just, I'm just hoping that what I try to do is I try to find things that I think are important for us all to know. Because my studies, my life experience, my work as a therapist, etc., has pointed out where not knowing this leads to pain. So you might as well share it. I mean, that's the whole reason I wrote my book, How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy, is I kept seeing the same problems over and over again. I go, okay, people don't understand that there's a few key things that you got to know, or you're going to have a hard time having a human body. <laughs> you know, So why wait till you're spending thousands of dollars to, when you can learn for $25 out of this book? <laughs> exactly. But ultimately, it goes back to your desire function because that interests you. If it hadn't, if it didn't interest you, you could care less whether people were in pain or not in pain. But if it interests you, if it's part of your desire function to, you know, help people or relieve pain, then, you know, you will be motivated then to look for ways or to better understand. That's my motivation. I don't like seeing people in pain. I think, you know, people need to be helped. But point is. I'm not the one to decide how they should be helped. I can only help myself. So everything I do, even this podcast, is really because I'm also growing through that. If I'm in talking to you and speaking about it, my consciousness is growing. And so as I grow, well, then those who are going to benefit will benefit. It's like Steiner says about the elemental forces. Are you consciously elevating the elemental forces? No, because we don't know much about them. But Steiner is saying, Everything you do to raise your consciousness, bring up the Christ consciousness in you, helps to liberate the elemental forces. That's what Paul is referring to when he said, nature groaneth in travail. You know, that, that nature is waiting to be liberated. This fallen Sophia, these, these elemental forces are waiting to be liberated. And we do that by activating our humanity, by elevating our humanity. And but we're not conscious of that. You know, we're not thinking, oh, I'm, I'm, we're not like St. Francis out there, you know, uh, lecturing, to the, lecturing to the animals and the bees and stuff. Uh, but it's happening nonetheless. So everything we do is having a levitating effect 
on the whole of creation. And, and then we're, we're doing what we should be doing. And this, what you're saying happens, just happens as a side note to play right into my philosophy of, of eating. And what I tell my vegetarian patients that, that are having health problems is because they have all this fear of eating animals that they're killing them. And I say, look, first of all, you can't kill life. <laughs> you know, just like you can't kill energy, you can only transform it and consciousness can't be killed. And everything you're eating is a form of energy and information and therefore a level of consciousness. So, you know, we're made up of what is classically referred to as second dimensional beings, you know, bacteria, viruses, fungi, whatever, you know, microorganisms, but we don't even realize them most of the time. But for example, if I eat chicken for lunch, I connect to the spirit of the chicken and say, thank you for joining me in body, mind and spirit. Together, we'll make the world a better place for all living beings. So I tell them that you're not killing it unless you eat it and then <laughs> watch soap operas and don't do anything with your life. Then you've killed it. No, but, but in reality, that being is now being brought into a human being because it, it, its spirit merges with yours. And now it actually gets a ride up the developmental ladder. And so it is now expressing itself through you as that being. In other words, you're, you're transforming it. It's really just an energy and consciousness transformation. And I think that's why spiritual eating is awareness of the fact that you're eating spirit, you're eating life, you're, you're eating, you know, God is, is a, is a sort of a cap catch term because there's nothing else here. Um, and I think that to me, that's a very, very important realization because when you realize that if you are being fed so you can contribute to your own evolution, which is an inspiration to others, then everything's co-contributing. It's, it's like a mutual evolution. It's a mutual alchemy. It's a mutual uh, conscious realization. And I think having these hard, rigid ideas about should and shouldn't and all that, it actually is really what happens is your program, you're just caught in someone else's ego and, and you believe it. Well, and again, that's part of the, the of a belief system uh, or a moralism versus an ethical system. So this is where the term people talk about, the ethical raising and killing of animals is it's everything in the creation is there for us to use and we use those things that we need at a given time to raise our consciousness and, and increase our energetic uh, functioning. And at some times in our life, we, we need meat and other times we may not need meat. And it, a lot depends on your consciousness, your age, your, your uh, other factors, development. your spiritual development, etc. But you're right. It has to be ethical, meaning it's not ethical, you know, just to do something, uh, you know, kill an animal when you don't need to kill an right. animal. I've always um, had a real hard time with that. Yeah. And ancient um, is different if you shoot a deer and like my neighbor does and he eats it, you know, he uses the, the hide and, and he eats the meat and everything else. But if you don't need it, then why would you just go out to shoot an animal? Just, oh, I'm just going to go out and shoot an animal. But the, the key is that if it's, if it's necessary to your development, it's ethical. If it's part of your, it, it's, it's given in, in the creation uh, for you to choose. 
But if you have a rigid belief, yes, you're, you're blocking yourself. You're turning things into morality as opposed to ethics. And ethics is, is what, do your, what does your desire function need? And if it needs to eat a chicken, then that's ethical. Now, you can pick, well, I'd rather have a chicken that was grown, you know, allowed to peck outside as opposed to being put into one of these factory farms or whatever. That's, you know, that's a matter of your choice. But the point is to decide it's not, you know, you, you can't kill an animal. Well, you may be at a point in your life where you don't want to eat animals and you don't want to kill animals, fine. But you can't extend that to a kind of overall moralistic rule that you can't kill animals. Yeah. Tell that tell that to the Inuit or, you know, others who live off the land and stuff. And yeah, unless you want to become a Jane and then you have to worry about all the invisible creatures you're stepping on and killing. So it just becomes sort of a what I call a, a form of mental masturbation at that point. It does, yeah, and and uh, your your approach to eating and everything is is really ties in with this idea of desire function. What do you need? Not what you think you need or you believe you need, but what do you truly need at this point for your life for you to become uh, a child of God, to grow in stature, in uh, consciousness, in mind, and everything. And yes, you can be ethical about how you raise animals and, you know, how you treat uh, the, the creation around you. You shouldn't be polluting and, you know, unnecessarily, et cetera, et cetera. We're given dominion, but we also have responsibility. Totally. Love, love always comes with responsibility. And that's another thing people often overlook. They think, oh, I'm going to get married to this person that I love so much. My life is going to be easy. But if you overlook the fact that being a parent comes with a hell of a lot of responsibility, being married comes with a lot of responsibility. And so does love of friendships. You know, like, like I, you know, I have a responsibility to you to do my part of this relationship and you to me. And if we either one of us forgoes that, the knock on effect is that everybody who listens gets the negative aspects of the relationship. Whereas if we, are in harmony with each other, then in other words, if we embrace the responsibility of love and relationship, then it's you don't need a church that's all there right in front of you everywhere you go. Yes, exactly. And and that's that's this whole idea of resonance and your desire function. As long as you're resonating with a thing, a person, a situation or whatever, there's no burden. Yeah. Um, I didn't want to sidetrack you. For, forgive me if I threw us on a segue, but I, I was trying to clarify some of the issues. That's why I brought these things up. And I'm also trying to, with the points I made, I was trying to cross-correlate alchemical concepts, Jungian concepts, and Greek concepts so that maybe some of the listeners could have a different perspective because some of the biblical stuff is is quite heavy for people. And unless you have a background in these studies, it can actually kind of stop the mind instead of absorbing a person's just lost. Like, what, what does he mean by that? You know, like, how, yes, how, can no, Adam, how can Adam be a man and a woman? You know, so, so I just, uh, what I try to do is to help use my own knowledge of things to sort, sort of open up the box a little bit so people can, if they don't catch one concept, maybe they can catch another. But with that said, 
feel free to, to continue from where you left off. I, I, I really am enjoying this. And I think these are all very important ways of contextualizing things that are often hard to understand. Well, I think, yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think we, we kind of came to the end of my tableau in the sense that we're on this journey to put ourselves back together. We've been split asunder both vertically and horizontally, as we talked about, so the physical male, female, but internally we're masculine, feminine polarity. And the only way we can get together, you could say, is do a square dance. <laughs> That's funny. Earth, water, fire, and air right there. Yes. <laughs> and if you've ever done square dancing, that's that's really what it's about, is is this, or contra dancing uh, is another form of that. But the, the key is, how do we get the masculine and feminine elements, both the vertical split and the horizontal split, how do we get them to dance together? And that's the whole purpose of this journey that we're undertaking and why we have, you could say, so much difficulty with internal relationships with ourselves. So, for example, one of the things that Reich talked about is the schizophrenic split. Now, we all know clinical schizophrenia, but Reich was talking about what he called normative schizophrenia, meaning we're, our perception and our sensation capacity is split wide. This Well, this takes you into Steiner's upper and nether being and the fact that we didn't properly dock together the two units. And so we have this split. So we're living in a world where we're perceiving things and sensing things and they don't come together. And so we are schizophrenic, as Reich would say. And so this is where we say things like, uh, well, they don't uh, like it. They do this and they do that. Who are the they? You know, these are the voices that we hear that have been internalized, you know, the kind of moralistic voices. They, they say this is not good or, you know, the, this institution or that. And so we're schizophrenic because we're not in contact with our own being, with God, with, uh, through, through the um, God the Father, through God the Son, the Christ impulse in us. and. So we need to bring that together. But in doing that, we're on this very painful journey where we're pulled every which way. We're slowly trying to bring all this stuff to consciousness. And then we're caught up now in this great awakening where the astral body, as I mentioned, is being opened up. So gender confusion. You know, everybody is something else. Nobody knows anymore what they are because they feel this, they feel that. And yet they're trying, the aromantic forces are trying to lock in this very understandable gender confusion to the biological sex, sexuality, which is an entirely different thing. Hi, everybody. Thank you for learning and growing with me and joining me on my podcast. A quick question for you. Do you know if you're getting enough magnesium? Because four out of five Americans aren't, and that's pretty much true worldwide. And that's a big problem because magnesium is involved in more than 600 biochemical reactions in your body. 
Today, I want to talk to you about the most common signs to look for that could indicate that you're magnesium deficient. Listen carefully to the end because there's a special offer happening and this could be exactly what you need. So here we go on some of the common symptoms that indicate you might be magnesium deficient. Are you irritable or anxious? If you're not sure, ask your partner. <laughs> Do you struggle with insomnia? Do you experience muscle cramps or twitches? Do you have high blood pressure? Are you constipated? Do you have a hard time falling asleep or getting a restful sleep? Do you feel more stressed than others that seem to be in the same or similar situations? Do you feel moody and wish your emotions were more stable? Do you feel you lack mental alertness? Do you feel you're at risk for osteoporosis and desire to build stronger bones? There are dozens of symptoms of magnesium deficiency, so these are just a few of the most common ones. Now, here's what most people don't know. Taking just any magnesium supplement won't solve your problem because most supplements use the cheapest kinds that your body simply can't absorb. That's why I personally recommend Magnesium Breakthrough. It's the only full-spectrum magnesium supplement with seven unique forms of magnesium that your body can actually use and absorb. All Bioptimizer supplements are the best of the options available, or I wouldn't be offering them to you. I don't offer anything on my podcast that my family and I don't use ourselves. Bioptimizers is so committed to offering you the best quality products that really work that if you are not satisfied, you can get a full refund, no questions asked. In fact, they are so confident they offer a 365-day money-back guarantee. To get your magnesium breakthrough and your 10% Living 4D discount, go to B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash living number 4D. That's by optimizers.com forward slash living number 4D. Use the promo code Paul10 to get your discount. And by the way, in addition to the discount you get by using the promo code Paul10, you can get gifts with your purchase, up to two travel-sized bottles of magnesium breakthrough. Act fast. This is a limited time offer. So go to bioptimizers.com forward slash living 4D and use the promo code Paul10 for your 10% discount. Enjoy. Yeah, why don't you give a little explanation of gender versus sexuality there? Because that's a, a most people have the belief that gender and sex are the same thing. If you're gender, if you're if you've got female sex organs, then you have female gender. So can you elaborate on that? Because I think a lot of people get lost right there. Okay. Well, sexuality is a biological thing. And that is manifested in the external physical form, muscular, genitalia, etc. So um, a physical man is very different structure from a physical female. And of course, we know they have different genitalia. So that is the sexual part. Okay, that's the procreative and creative dynamic part. The gender part has to do with the split between the feminine mind and the masculine mind and so in the male normally the masculine mind dominates okay, in the physical male but to the, to the extent the percentage of dominance goes down then you get more and more influence coming from the feminine mind so we could say this has a lot to do with homosexuality it's been around for a long time. Oh, yes. Um, Even among animals. 
So that's gender. So the gender is feeding off of that polarity, but it's also lodged in the psyche as opposed to the soma. Okay, so the psyche now is open to all of this doubt and confusion as to identity. And because it's reflecting this attempt to balance this sexuality, this fourfold sexuality, that it now has, you could say, a lack of proper grounding. It's like going through the teenage years. If you remember or watch your kids go through teenage years, I certainly watch mine, between the age of 12 and 16, 17, I have the faintest idea who they are. Every day, there's somebody else. You know, they're trying out different uh, personalities and, and emotions, and it's just all over the place. They don't pay too much attention to it because they're just going through this process of trying to figure out who they are. But culturally now, as we move into this spirit self phase that Steiner talks about, going from the consciousness soul to the spirit self, which opens up the astral body to become more connected to the spiritual world. Part of that problem is confusion because we have to figure it out, right? This is something to be figured out. Well, so we're like teenagers between 12 and 16 or 17 trying to figure out who we are. And so we have this tremendous confusion going on. Now, the Aramanic forces want to use it to either create transhumanism, transhumanism, you know, elements get rid of this this whole spiritual component entirely and bury the living being in in some kind of machine-like existence. The more luciferic type of influences that are still there are basically trying to get rid of sexuality. You know, let's 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 treat it as we can swap the genitalia, and and you know, it 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 basically you know will. Uh, Sexuality is not important. Uh, and put all the emphasis on gender, what you feel. What do you feel like today? You know, well, I feel like a fox or, uh, you know, it's not surprising that it's come down to this idea of, you know, furry animals because in evolution, as Steiner points out, the animal kingdom is the part of Adam that was sloughed off as being undesirable. There was a kind of cleansing of the Adamic being going on. And so, but we still have some of these animal ability. Oh, he's a foxy person. You got to be careful with him. You know? uh-huh. He could be a bear. And we use all this words. We say, oh, it's just, uh, it's just, a, you know, illusions or whatever. But no, there is a reality that the animal aspects of ourselves, if they are not cleansed and elevated by the higher spiritual parts, that they will become more and more animalistic. You see this in pornography. You see this in, you know, the the the, the kind of hookup culture, uh, the uh, you know, friends with benefit culture. And I'm not talking about the traditional morality that you have to be, you know, in the one person for life and you know the family, etc. Because that can be very fluid. But the point is that there is a certain getting rid of true resonant relationships by by emphasizing the material sexuality nature and the rest is 
is not important. Whereas it's the opposite. The, the physical sexuality is important, but it's only important in the context of a resonant relationship. Because if you have physical sexuality without a resonant relationship, you're actually destroying your consciousness. You're actually ruining your consciousness. Give me an example of, of what you mean. How would that look like? Well, let's say you marry for, uh, if you don't marry for love, which is what they mean, but I'm talking about resonance, you marry for uh, position, power, status, uh, makes you look good, makes you feel good. Passport. You get a <laughs> passport, you get a trophy wife or, you know, trophy husband or whatever. This diminishes you because you are now acting on ego, an ego basis. And the ego is destructive of your consciousness. The ego lives in awareness. The ego is very, um, uh, fearful, very defensive, very protective, very vain, very uh, aggressive uh, in terms of getting what it thinks it needs. So, you know, all this uh, politicians and, you know, lawyers, other people, they're all grabbing because the ego wants more and more and more. And so that diminishes you because but every relationship that is based on resonance with your desire function that supports that desire function raises your mind and consciousness yeah especially if it, it's in harmony with your partner yes that's what i mean every if you're in harmony with your partner you're now forming when you have physical sex this is what tantric sex is all about if you now have sex with your resonant partner you're forming an energy unit temporarily which represents what's going to happen when you when you ultimately reconnect with yourself you're you 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 get this very powerful energy flow that raises your mind and consciousness doesn't diminish it there's every such relationship with someone that's not resonant for all of these ego reasons diminishes you and you see that in the movies very clear how destructive these relationships are and how each person just gets dragged down lower. Uh, it's like a cat on a hot tin roof, you know, kind of uh, relationship. Very corrosive, very destructive, but in many, in many ways. I think too, like from my own experience, what holds my relationship with Angie and Penny together is that we all have the same dream, and that is to fulfill the role of the Czech Institute and all the workshops we give and, and my podcast. In other words, we work for something bigger than us. Yes, of course. And and that's keeps us from falling into petty arguments and the kinds of things that destroy a lot of relationships because, you know, we we can identify what the small stuff is versus what we're all here to do together. Yeah, you're sharing a desire function. Yeah. Their desire function has mar is married to your desire function so this is what we could call a holy wedlock yeah i would call it a sacred marriage yeah wedlock is two things lock they come together because they are resonant and they stay together as long as they are resonant and that no man can rent asunder because it's so powerful that you know if 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 you're married to someone uh because they're uh, beautiful in your eyes 
and then they get old and then you see somebody else who's more beautiful and, oh, I got to divorce her and, and marry someone else. Man has rent that asunder, you could say, because you just, oh, getting rid of one. But the resonance, there's, there's no way that that can be destroyed except the resonance no longer exists. That, just to go back to your previous point, that's also really a person whose consciousness is really trapped at the level of animal magnetism, you know, a sexy body. But what I've found in my life, and I, I suspect you too, is that I have found that as people grow spiritually, that I'm talking about people I've been in a relationship with, whether they be friends or coworkers, they become more beautiful to me, not because of their physical body, but because I see more and more of the soul in them. I see more and more of God in them or, or of um, uh, what I would think would be more aligned with Plato's concept of beauty as real beauty, you know? Beauty is in the eye of the beholder, meaning it depends on how you're looking at whatever you're looking at, person, thing, you know, object is if you are looking through the eyes of the self based on resonance, beauty is that which resonates. Oh, that's beautiful. Everything else is just, it just exists. Uh, or if it is contrary to your resonant function, it's ugly, you know, in a sense. But the point is, you're absolutely right. What is beautiful and increasingly, initially, because our consciousness is fairly limited and shallow, it may be limited to the physical plane, but even there, it can't truly work in a resonant way unless there's a soul connection. So then the soul connection increasingly drives the perception of beauty because you're now looking inside the, the cage, as it were inside this vehicle and you're seeing the true self in the other and now if it's resonant it's incredibly beautiful it, it can't but be i'll give you an, another example to point this out which others listening may have had the experience of i've met people because you know obviously i'm quite knowledgeable about the physical body and i also have a lot of animal magnetism believe me i'm i still look at good looking women and want to pounce on them i'm not dead yet um you know i'm i'm a i'm a human healthy male and i'm heterosexual through and through but i've met people who were physically unattractive maybe they were overweight or they you know they had you know didn't have nice proportions or crooked teeth and and I've looked at them and, and said from my inside mind, wow, I feel sorry for that person because that's got to be challenging to, you know, not look very beautiful. But through my relationship with them, and it could be making music together, it could be um, discussing issues of the world, you know, any type of sharing, all of a sudden I look at them and I don't see the same person I saw. I see beauty radiating from them. And, it, and it's, it's, helped, it's helped me grow up because what it's done is it's helped me see how the, the lower level of consciousness in me is what confronted them. 
But as I connected to them at my heart, I, it actually changed what I was seeing in them. I'm like, like I'm looking at the same person, but now they're attractive to me, even at the animal level. So the, the, the resonance of the heart seems to actually have a transformative effect, even on the lower levels of consciousness. Yes, absolutely. It, it's the resonance is comes from the lower level, but it needs to be, you could say, translated and filtered through the higher, the higher mind. So you're now seeing why the resonance is there. Like initially, you might think it's because of this factor or that factor, but ultimately the resonance has to do with the deeper soul quality, soul spiritual quality. And once you connect to that, then you see the beauty in everything. Um, this is uh, in uh, the book of um, oh, Thomas, I think, uh, one of these apocryphal books that they discovered where they're passing this dead, uh, rotting carcass of a donkey on the road. And, and Christ says, they said, oh, and they, they are repelled by the sight. And Christ says, oh, look at those beautiful teeth. You know, like trying to teach them that there's beauty in everything. It's how you look at the thing, whether you see beauty or you don't. If it's not in your resonant, uh, resonance field, then generally you don't see it. It's just like lots of things pass you in life and you don't see them. But if you're looking with your ego, then yes, you see, oh, that's ugly and that's terrible and that's, that's great. But that's superficial and doesn't last very long because it's, it's purely, it's not grounded in your true being. But anything grounded in your true being, you'll find the beauty there. And the closer you get to that true being, the more you feel and see the beauty. It's just amazing. It's like, wow, you know, it has nothing to do with their position, their looks, their, you know, what they're dressed like. It's just, Oh my God, the, the beauty here. You know, yes. It's, it's very powerful. And it, it, in some ways it gives me hope for humanity because I know if I can have that experience, everyone can have that experience. And I think it helps. It helps us see the, some of the darker side of the ego. You know, we, we, we learn to not be so trusting of what rises up in us so quickly and say, you know, you know, you you realize that we're projecting an image onto somebody, but we're not really connecting to that person. You know, yeah, it's all project. It's all projection. We, we project what we want and see in the other person, and when they don't reflect that after a while, like initially in a relationship, uh, people tend to reflect what they think the other person wants to see or they sense. But if it's not true, then eventually it wears off because you know, it's the honeymoon periods of 18 months or something. It wears off because they get tired of being someone they're not, even in their ego sense. And so then things start to fall apart. And by a certain phase, the seven-year itch, as they call it, that all breaks down because it's not sustainable. The only thing that is sustainable is a relationship that has that resonance. Now, then you have to work through the, the difficulties of growing together, and that's where the dissonance can come in. But that's part of the love grows and increases through a process like that. It doesn't diminish. Well, b before we end, there's two concepts that I wrote down that I wanted to 
share and just hear your thoughts on. One of them I think is very interesting for the listeners to hear, and you may or may not be familiar with it, but Jung spoke of the inner ego and the outer ego. And he said that a lot of what ails people physically, emotionally, and mentally is there's a conflict between the inner ego and the outer ego. So he defines the outer ego as what you project to other people, the way you present yourself, whether it's true or false. Um, your persona. Your persona and, and how you manipulate it to try to get what you want. And the inner ego is is the relationship you have with yourself. Like, you know, if you, you know when you're lying and, and your inner ego will either beat the hell out of you for it. Why'd you do that? You're going to burn in hell and all that stuff. So he really spoke about the importance of becoming aware of the inner and ego's re- out and inner ego, outer ego relationship and bringing that into harmony, which is kind of like having two people in, inside you, one that's looking out and one that's looking in, almost like you've got a second face that turns inward and another one that turns outward. And then working on bringing those into harmony with, you know, what I would call your soul or your, or your higher self or your heart's true resonance so that the inner ego and the outer ego are not in conflict anymore. And having worked with that concept for a number of years with, with patients and people that I'm coaching, I find that when a person becomes aware of the inner ego and aware of the outer ego and aware of the imbalances between them and then takes a position of of looking down on them in other words detaching themselves from being entangled but say look at this puppet show i got going on here and then trying to marry these two so there's only really one sense of self in you i think that that goes a long way and i think a lot of this you know, gender crisis we have can be related to that because on the inside, a person can have what they orient to as a female inside of them, but on the outside, they have a male. And so if they don't get a meta position where they can look at this dynamic, because once you take a meta position on that dynamic, you can realize, well, whatever's looking at it isn't male or female because you have both of them there presenting themselves to you as you, but you're watching it and witnessing it from an asexual position or, you know, almost a hermaphrodite view because both of those are presenting themselves in you. So I think a lot of people are getting lost because they're orienting themselves toward one and trying to dominate the other for the inner ego. If it's feminine, but you're wearing a man's body, you might go get a sex exchange, but you, but, but you, you know, you, but you really haven't dealt with the conflict. You've just basically let one dominate. And then when the healing comes, you might say, what did I do to myself? You know? Mm-hmm. Well, again, you know, we're, we're, as regards you and we're facing an issue of nomenclature because Steiner also and many others talk about the different types of ego, if you want to call it, um, and depends on what we call them. But yes, uh, there is, this outer ego or temporaries, I, I call it the guardian, you know, that, that we're given to look after us until we figure out who we are, uh, like our parents, you know, they guide us. And so that could be the outer ego, makes sense. Uh, the inner ego, um, Steiner talks about two types of inner ego. There is the kind of 
temporary inner ego, which he also calls the phantom, um, which were given for a given lifetime. But there is the true ego, which doesn't enter into our given, a given incarnation, but waits outside that incarnation and meets us again on the other end. And then the two are joined and the phantom ego becomes part of and is added to the experience of that other ego. And then finally, there's this higher spiritual self or ego that um, we are, uh, that is like uh, Plato's archetype. It's an archetype that has existed from the beginning. It's there, but we're going back to activate it. So it's there in a kind of potential sense, and we're constantly activating that potential and unfolding it. So yes, the you know what Jung said, he's he's cottoned onto that distinction polarity between the true and the false ego, and then Steiner's added, well, there's this given incarnation because you know ego, and then there's this or self I call it, and then there's this uh, growing through time self and then there's finally this ultimate self that we need to activate that everything gets put together into one and there's just our individuality as what he calls a member of the 10th hierarchy spiritual hierarchy <laughs> you know so there's this long journey but you're right the key for most people is this distinction between this false outer persona that we present to everyone and this truer sense of ourself which is governed by our conscience you know in the sense of that's how we know we have this other self is oh i don't feel so good about that and that's what needs to be activated in a given incarnation is this this true self and so that's partly to come back to the first talk we had is why i follow this form of treatment because i find a very effective way of getting rid of and transforming the karma, the, the karmic baggage people are carrying and allowing them to literally jettison the false self, the persona and activate their true self, but also in the true sense to activate the generative power. So you're activating also that Christ power within you. So you're not only activating the true self at, at one half of the level, but you're bringing this powerful generative capacity so now you can do all sorts of things that you might have thought previously impossible just because now you're powered by this 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 christ consciousness this christ power yeah it's very good so the last concept i just wanted to see where it fits into the context of what you've shared today and that is the concept of the adam cadmon because that concept as I've learned it from my studies, really is the whole man. It's almost like the product of both the archetype of, but what we're growing into is the whole man. Uh, how does how does the concept of the Adam Cadmon fit into everything we've discussed today from your perspective? Well, in my understanding, it's it's ties in with the original idea of Adam. But you're right; it's it's the growth of that original unit of mind and consciousness along this long journey because it came out through the you know medieval mystics and the and the gnostics um this is what in uh, new testament is called the second adam 
or the, the Christ, you know, Jesus Christ in the sense of this activation of this new type of generative power. So yes, Adam Kadmon is just the ultimate form of everything being unfolded, all of this potential mind and consciousness being raised up and being unfolded. And but the the key here is to understand that this journey is not a journey of a unity unitary being, but of a being that has been split. So we're Adam is 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 looking for the other half. <laughs> We're always looking for the other half. You know, is it in this person, this thing, this book, uh, this podcast, this talk? We're always looking for ourselves and helping, and every resonant experience helps us to find ourselves and raise our mind and consciousness. So the concepts are more or less the same. Yeah, good. What a, what a amazing exploration of of the bible of the deeper terminology of some of the deeper meanings of masculine and feminine or 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 the sexual polarities the the difference between sex and gender um i mean we've covered a lot of really important concepts that i think are very very important particularly for us to understand now that are also concepts that are very, very confused by different ideologies, religions, you know, isms. So it's, I hope everybody's got a chance to really meditate on the things we're talking about. And, and, and if some of these concepts seem very deep and hard to grapple with, I think, you know, the way I handle things like that is when I study things that are sometimes deep for me, I kind of developed a system where I read them first as entertainment. I say, I'm not going to get over wound up about this. I'm just going to sort of let it soak into me so I can digest it, you know? And I think a lot of people rush too quickly to try to have to think they understand something. And so what they do is they make stuff up and then convince themselves they understand it. But what I found is if you allow yourself time to digest, metabolize, and assimilate things like this, it starts to grow inside of you, you know, it ferments inside of you. And then you come back and listen to this podcast two or three months from now, and all of a sudden you'll realize, oh, that's what that is. It'll it'll actually start illuminating things inside of you because the digestive process is actually taking you deeper into it. And a lot of this is going on in our unconscious. So the ego is not really aware that it's actually working with these concepts. And all of a sudden they, they start showing up and you you understand them. So I think for some, these kinds of deep conversations can be a little challenging, but my inspiration to the listeners is to listen to it like a great story. That's why I use the word entertainment. It's like Paul and Rudy are telling a very interesting story, almost like a mythological story, because it is. And then go back to it. And then you'll find that you'll you'll hear things you missed the first time and you'll have meanings arise in you. And so I know, for example, there's, you know, there's many books in my library I've read five times. And every time I read it, I went, oh, my God, I don't know how I missed that the first time. Or finally, I understand what this guy was saying. You know, Steiner's very much that way. My God, I mean, I probably need to read every one of the books I've read on Steiner three or four more times because I find that happens to me with Steiner, happens with Jung. Happens with Ibn al Arabi, uh, 
It happens with Corbin. It happens with, you know, even Alarabi via Corbin mostly. Ken Wilbur. I mean, I can just go on and on and on because when you're when you're listening to or reading very, very evolved people, you can only interpret them through the lens of where you're at in your own development. Exactly. Yeah. So you got to go back, and and that's where it takes you know what what I would refer to as well discipline. You have to have the discipline to be committed to learning, and the ego is likes to keep saying, "Oh, I know that, I know that," you know. And, and here's one of the ways I instill this in my students. I'll tell you a funny story about this. I was teaching my most advanced holistic lifestyle course, which is HLC three where it's all about, you know, complex cases and, and things like that. And I had this guy in class who really prided himself as a wise ass, had probably, I think he had three master's degrees. He, he kept giving me shit because I kept talking about the four doctors. And he goes, I already learned all that stuff. You talked about that over and over again. I want to know the deep stuff. I said, I am talking about the deep stuff. The problem is you're not paying attention because you think you know what I'm talking about. So that was probably day two of a six-day class. So finally, on about the fifth day, he was going at me again. And so here's what I did. I said, I'll make you a deal. If you can tell me the names of the four doctors, I'll stop talking about them. Okay, this guy's in essentially his third year of training telling me he doesn't want to hear about this because he already knows about it. And he could not tell me the name of the four doctors. And this happened in front of the whole class. And, you know, people couldn't help but crack up laughing because they're hearing him go at me all the time. And so I said to him, I see you create an illusion in your mind that you know these four doctors, but you have not been living them and you haven't been practicing them. Here you are trying to learn the most advanced stuff so you can go out and polish up your ego and tell everybody how smart you are, but you're not even practicing what I teach online to the public. And I think that's what one of the dangers of the ego is it likes to tell itself it knows things. And that's a lack of study discipline. And that leads to a wise ass that sounds good in a coffee shop, but misleads themselves and others. And so my encouragement to the listeners is if this felt deep to you and there's concepts that are hard to grapple with, focus on what you did pick up and then Set a time for yourself to say, I'm going to go back and listen to that podcast in three months and see what happens when you listen to it again. And I guarantee you something's going to happen. Yes. Oh, it's a very wise way of putting it because uh, in essence, as uh, scripture says and Steiner says, you know, you must have a sense of wonder, like childlike wonder. You take in as a story. You don't judge. You don't uh, start thinking, is this right or wrong? You just take it in and let it act on your soul. And if it resonates, it'll activate something in you, whether you understand it consciously or not. But then it raises your consciousness. So next time you listen to it or someone else is talking about this, the same thing. Oh, okay. Now you pick it up. I I'm still at a stage where I can read a book I've read from Steiner seven times and I'll read something, go, I don't remember that, a really important point. And I had no idea this was there. Like you're you're you can only take in at any given point what your consciousness needs at that point. The rest is not. So not everything we've talked about here is going to resonate with everyone. Maybe only a few things, but the point is. It's going to activate something. As you say, it, gets, it bypasses the ego. If it resonates, 
it'll it'll keep working on you and bypass that ego structure, that defense of ego. Yeah, and I find when it resonates, it makes you hungry for more. Yes, exactly, exactly. You want to know more, and that motivates you to listen or go read a book or do something. So yeah, you you are your own best teacher in a sense. Like you you start following and finding out what you need to find out. Not everybody needs to hear what you and I are talking about or needs needs it for their development per se. But those aspects they do need, they will activate something. Yes. Well, Rudy, thank you. I've, I've, we're hitting a hundred percent for excellent conversations and I am very grateful for all the work you've done to grow yourself and, and support other people. I, uh, every time I've done a podcast with you, I've, I've felt richly rewarded and you helped me see things from different perspectives. And, uh, you know, you've done a lot of Steiner study and it's obvious. So you helped me even understand Steiner better. And so I really, I'm grateful for your presence and your offering for all of us. Why don't you take a minute and tell people just in case this is the first podcast somebody's heard with you about what your institute is, what you offer, where to find you, and and we can close with that. Okay. Well, uh, basically, uh, despite all of this generic philosophical stuff that we've been talking about, the the where the rubber hits the road is a way. Uh, our clinic offers a way to help people to remove the barriers to greater mind and consciousness to help them set aside the false ego or the persona and, and develop the true self and find themselves, which everyone I think is trying to do. And there are many uh, therapies out there that can help them as well. What distinguishes what we do really relates to this generative power, and that is removing blockages that are lodged in this generative power, which is a totally different uh, technology, you could say, in natural law of doing it. Um, We have two websites. One is the easiest one, homeopathy.com, which gives the clinic information as well as the uh, college. uh, We train people. And the other one gives a more of a detailed explanation of our treatment approach, and it's called uh, myhealthplan.center. So any of those, and then there are links to other websites we have uh, if people want to learn or whatever. But the key here is that there there is a way to help you. There is a way. Many therapies will help you in various ways. The only thing we add is really removing things that otherwise often don't get removed uh, simply because it requires a somewhat different technology. But it's it's not the end-all and be-all, it requires um, a lot of support from the other therapies. And my dream one day is to create a scientific form which integrates all of these different approaches and therapies we have into a truly scientific approach so that you could go to someone and they say, oh, you first need to do this. And then at a certain stage, oh, you need to go to this practitioner and get that treatment. And but we don't have any science for that. It's all hit or miss right now. It's, you know, by, by process of referral or you just happen upon something. But there is a science behind it. And that's my driving motivation is to develop this science part. So. Excellent. Well, thank you. And thank you to all of you. Thank you to my sponsors for all the excellent products you make. Every time you buy something from the sponsors, you're putting money into the hands of people that do care for the planet that are very supportive of regenerative agriculture and our overall well-being. 
And so I appreciate any support you get from uh, by buying from the sponsors. And they only I only offer them because I am in a values alignment. And they're all products that I use and things that I use myself. And I'm very discerning about these things, as you can imagine. And so thanks for all of you joining me and Rudy today. I think uh, we had a lot to uh, talk about, to digest, and to utilize to help ourselves live and love more fully and be the best examples we can be for other people in the world. And I look forward to sharing a lot more with you in a week. Lots of love. Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check and today's guest, Rudy Vespor. You can find out more about the Hanuman Center for Heil Kunst and Homeopathy online at homeopathy.com, where you can learn more about the comprehensive study programs for healthcare professionals. Also visit romantichealthcare.com for the School for Romantic Science and Healthcare, which offers holistic education for self-exploration or to become a romantic healthcare practitioner. For those interested in private one-on-one sessions for specific health needs, you can visit the HCH Romantic Healthcare Clinic at myhealthplan.center. Catch up with Paul on Instagram, TikTok, and threads at paul.check, on x at paulcheck, or on his YouTube podcast channel, youtube.com forward slash living4d with Paul Check. You can watch more on Paul's blog at paulchecksblog.com or visit the Czech Institute site at checkinstitute.com to find Paul's e-learning courses, advanced training programs, and to learn more about the Czech Academy. You can read the show notes and find links to all the resources mentioned in this episode at checkinstitute.com forward slash podcast. This podcast would not be possible without the support of our premier sponsors by Optimizers, Organifi and Paleo Valley and our podcast sponsor, Wild Pastures. Please show your appreciation by taking advantage of their special discounts for our listeners. The links are in the show notes. And finally, if you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and a warm review on the podcast platform of your choice. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, Google Podcasts, and YouTube.